Hello and welcome to Conversations with the Voice of Reason. I'm your host, Benjamin Boyce, and today's guest is Jason Miller from Native Liberty. He's a Native American man, and he is speaking out against critical social justice as it is infiltrating his community. We also talk about that community, which is actually a whole bunch of communities. Native Americans are a diverse set of cultures that are treated singularly by our central government. We talk about the economic factors of that, the policy matters of that, and I get a great basic education about the Native experience within America and also get to dive into Jason Miller's mind. He's a very smart man with a blue-collar grounding. Best of both worlds here. And if you want to have more time with him, do check out his channel filled and becoming more and more fuller of great content. This guy is a really solid dude. So without further ado, here is Jason Miller from Native Liberty. You have so many books behind you. Oh, yeah. That's pretty wow. much my life. Yeah. Glorified wow. nerd. What, what put you on that path? Uh, probably when I was in my late 20s. I just started, um, I don't know, I felt like I was, to use uh, Kierkegaard's uh, The Three Stages of of Existence, I felt like I was in the first stage for the first, you know, (laughs) 20-something years of my life, or like 25, 26, the aesthetic stage, where it was just about living for the Friday, living for the weekend, and then after that, it was... Hmm. Kind of just like, you know, I'm going to get more engaged and involved. So I started reading more and more and more. And it just became a thing into itself, I guess you could say. So yeah. so it was kind of just a general feeling. Were there like specific incidents that kickstarted uh, you on that? Or you got, into a, you got painted into a corner in a bar fight. And you're like, I could have <laughs> talked myself out of that if I had some Kierkegaard on my shoulder. <laughs> <laughs> well, for me, it's uh, actually, you know what? For, uh, it came down to... Uh, at that time, I was trying to look for uh, a church to go back, you know, start getting back and trying to go back to church because I had walked away from the church at like 16, 17. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I felt like, uh, I don't know, I was married at the time and I felt like I needed to ground, you know, find something to ground myself in. And I remember, and I've talked to a lot of people about this, but I, uh, at that time, I was searching and every time I kept coming across, um, and no offense, but like these very heavily. Uh, evangelistic churches where it's all about uh, proselytizing and getting the message out. And I was just like, man, there's got to be more to this. More, isn't there some more depth to it than this? And uh, I felt like I was searching and searching. I actually stumbled across a guy named R.C. Sproul and this one, Legionnaire Ministries. And he spoke about the self-existence of God. As, he used the Latin term, Sadie. And he went on to these classical arguments for the ontological argument and, you know, the, the Kalam cosmological argument, all these arguments. And I was like, I've never heard this. I've never. And that started me down the path of philosophy, you know, from that one entry. And then from there, it's just it was branched out to economics and then just everything from that point. You know, I just it was like constant, you know. Hmm. So, yeah. Wow. That's yep. fun. Yeah. <laughs> How about you? What's uh, the Evergreen incident? Or just is that is that the uh, the pinnacle of my intellectual existence? <laughs> no, no. You know, what? I watched uh, you did um, your your uh, episode on um, it was your live stream, and you were just kind of just um, you were talking about David Foster Wallace, and it was fascinating. I had I, you your insights, and then you were talking about your novel. 
I was like, this is, I was blown away. I was like, oh, I was really watching. I actually went back and watched that Charlie Rose interview that he did because of you. And I was like, this is so good. It was, it was such a, uh, such a, a gift, such a, yeah. gift. That, you know, so yeah. 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 Wow. We lost a big one. Um, Definitely. Yeah. You know what? I have to be completely honest and uh, just say that ever since I started doing this YouTube thing, which was in, you know, June of 2017, my my attention can't interact with the page anymore. I'm I'm in this audio video world now, and I don't know how to break out of it. Yeah, I'm I'm kind of slowly weaning myself off of uh, social media in a way. But you know, well, whenever I find a book that's interesting, I usually go through audiobook. Um, yeah, and then if I if I'm interested, I'll end up uh, trying to get the author on to interview them before I even finish the book. So I'd rather oh. just talk to the source. So I'm That's learning a whole way. lot in conversation and it's a different medium. It's kind of a different yeah, it's a different medium. It might be kind of a different ballgame than than the book. Uh, but I was heavily invested in in all types of fiction uh, before then and up into and including my evergreen uh, education where I started going deeper into theory of, of yeah. literature, critical theory, uh, or, it, you know, critic criticism. Yeah. Yeah. Well, see, that's the thing is that's where I also got into, um, eventually on my channel, I want to explore, um, some of the great works of Western civilization, you know, the great books. I'm, I'm heavily invested into that. I mean, I've read a lot of native stuff as well. I like Joy, Har Joy Harjo. She's a uh, native poet from the Muscogee, Muscogee nation. Mm -hmm. But um, like I love my my favorite book is the Aeneid and then Paradise Lost and Henry V. That those are all my classics: The Song of Roland, The Dream of the Rude, The Beowulf, you know, um, Lord of the Rings. So that's all we. That's all. That's my plan is to eventually, because I really believe that with this, you know, critical race theory, this wokeism stuff, we need a, we need to not only defend, but we need to show people why you know Western civilization it's got its foibles and its failures, but it's also yeah. got its greatness, its its ability to revise itself and so that's one of the things i have planned for the channel like right now if you go to my channel it's pretty much five or six videos of just attacking critical race theory you know identity yeah. politics but i've got way more planned so yeah 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 Definitely. i was speaking with uh i was in a you know kind of a zoom call uh, or whatever with a bunch of dissidents uh who are you know speaking out in their respective areas and i've actually had a lot of those people on my channel Actually, I've had them all on my channel except one. So you kind of know, like, the kind of person I'm talking about. And yeah. they were all kind of saying that they're getting tired of doing this, and this is really taking a lot out of them, and that there's a lot of stress involved because their jobs are on the line, or there's all these legal concerns that they have. Mm. And I just said, you, you know, if no matter, like, how important this fight is, and it is important, you have to nourish yourself, and mm -hmm. if you have a platform, you, you're being invited to nourish others. And yes. mm -hmm. so, and so, just tithe a little bit of your attention and your time and your audience's time toward what you really love. Yeah, uh, you know, yeah. art, music, philosophy, psychology, and stuff like that. And let's just re-establish uh, the academe, uh, mm -hmm. in meaning you know the, that garden where Socrates. 
spoke. Yeah. Let's reestablish mm-hmm. that. Let's have our symposiums. And the attention will, will follow. I mean, not the accreditation, not the institution, but we will be making meaning. We will be making content um, that will outlast because it's a part of a tradition that has last this current moral panic insofar as this moral panic doesn't have something that will last inside of it other than just <laughs> imminent destruction of everything. Something pops out of the head of Zeus. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah, who knows? But uh, so speaking of your channel then, and let, I'd like to, you know, kind of just meditate on, on your criticism yeah. uh, by grounding that and why you wanted to speak out. Like what prompted you uh, to take well, a was- stand? Well, I was I was familiar with it happened. I think it was in 2015 with uh, I think it was happened at Yale University where the dean got yelled at by the students. I saw that video, mm-hmm. and then I saw, I think I think those the Peterson phenomena when uh, when they went off on him about the pronouns, and then uh, then Evergreen when it just exploded, and I was like, and I, at the time I was still kind of like, um, this is just the university. This is the the kooky Berkeleyist kind of you know. This is just you know isolated incident. And then I went, uh, and I saw Lindsay on um, Rogan's show, but it wasn't until I think the the whole perfect storm of the lockdowns, the COVID, the George Floyd uh, incident, all of that just seemed to explode. And then I was like, wait, why, why are I don't I have I'm totally supportive of peaceful protesting, but when you start burning down private property, hurting you know citizens, I thought that's something something's not right here. So I really thought, okay, it's time to dust off all my postmodern books and some of the critical race theory I had read a long time ago. And I just thought, you know, I, I, so that was the part of it. But on a personal level, I was talking, I have a lot of, I've I've worked on the same reservation for like, I think it's 23 years now. So I have a lot of native friends. I have thousands of friends and not thousands, but you know, a lot of native friends and acquaintances and colleagues and stuff that I've known for for a while now. And they've, throughout the years, they've, they've trusted my opinion. They would come to me like, what's going on? You know, my, my so-and-so, I don't want to say their names, but, my daughter, my son has gone off to college and they've come back radicalized. You know, I don't know them anymore. There are splits in the family. I mean, it's actual splits in the family now where they're, yeah. I had one buddy of mine who, um, he said his, in his own household, his two, his two daughters won't talk to him anymore. And it's like, it's, so it's that, it's at that point where it's, and any little comment, he feels like he's constantly under criticism. Anything he says, he's just, it's just like the, the purity standards in his own household is like just through the roof. And so they were asking me, what do you think about this? And I said, well, you know, so I figured I'd start the channel really just for my friends, <laughs> you know, just to be able to get you know, some of the research I did and yeah. get it out there. And it just kind of took a life of its own uh, beyond what I was really, actually, I, I expected maybe 40, 50 followers, at, you know, <laughs> subscribers. And I look at like, it's like, I'm at 600 now. Like I didn't, I didn't expect that, <laughs> but it's, I'm, you know, I'm glad. Well, may it, it not stay there after, you, you're done talking with me and then get on, uh, I don't know, Rogan yourself. Oh, yeah, I don't think that's going to happen. The Weinsteins, uh, Weinstein poaches my content, and so does uh, Trigonometry. So there's a path oh. towards Rogan if you yeah. keep this up. I'm just, I'm just trying to warn you at this point. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that's how it, that's kind of how it came about, I guess. And then uh, in my own, you know, uh, my daughter's 22 and I have a son who's 17. And uh, they're exposed to it a lot. I didn't realize how the influence of social media. I, you know, I'm a, I'm an old school Gen Xer, and so I mean, I'm at that cusp where technology is something I'm familiar with, but it's like I can just put it down. 
with them it's constantly and my you know my daughter was here yesterday visiting us and she was just uh you know th- there's it's it's everywhere and it's like they're like tiktok like they're showing me i'm talking to don mm-hmm. she was saying that she sees uh her daughter's phones and they have like every 15 seconds a new video about uh, non-natives checking their privilege it's like what is this what is going on here it's like oh, this is yeah and it's like so you get enough of that through osmosis you just start okay this is a real thing you know what i mean it's not it's like wait yeah. no this is it's this, so there's way more to this than going on and it's a very simplistic reductionistic reductive view of reality so mm-hmm. yeah the speaking of the natives and uh, you saw this at evergreen we, i saw it at evergreen too uh, there's a I don't think it's appropriation, but it, there's like this melding of the the local tribes with Evergreen, and there's a, the, there's like kind of history there, and, and they help one another. And uh, mm-hmm. um, but with regards to uh, there's this acronym BIPOC, uh, yeah, they call it right. Yeah. So yeah. the Black Liberation Movement. Uh, is leaning heavily on the indigenous movement and a lot of their evocations of the mm-hmm. sins of America. And that evocation of sin of America is where they get most of their power. And that's their entry to power. And then to, you know, getting people to agree with them yeah. or forcing people out that don't agree with them uh, mm-hmm. for all those tricks. But they lean really heavily on the indigenous community uh, while still in my estimation and i'm i'm you know this is just the bias that i have and and by bias i mean just the narrowness of what i can actually consume i don't see a lot of natives taking this up um in and yeah. of themselves other than being kind of marched out um yeah. so mm-hmm. do you think i mean it's very infectious stuff and and the this generation your 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 children my uh the the generation after generation x um are being steeped in it and trained in it i'm wondering where do you think that will head for the native community if you can if you feel comfortable speaking yeah 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 first of all i don't speak on behalf of either the entire you know I, i i view that if anything part of the like inherent this one size fits all model that the federal government has instituted on tribes okay okay and i look at that as like as a, I don't mean you, but I mean like that concept is more of a like a paternal. It's like inherent paternalism, and so okay. when I look at like critical race theory, it's the same thing. They're trying to um, appropriate indigenous people for their for their cause, and I'm, it's like that's one of the reasons why I wanted to speak up against it because it's like no, this there's this is this has ramifications beyond you know really negative horrible stuff for society, and this like. That's why I start off my videos with that with a quote from uh, Chief Joseph, because he in that quote he's talking about uh, equality under the law for all of us, a common humanity, and that's what most of the you know traditional natives they appeal to this natural law, this common humanity, this common theme that we all share in, and that's mm-hmm. like what Martin, Martin, again like you know Martin Luther King the same thing, you know that's what and I tell people like if you come to me and you tell me you're experiencing you know oppression or racism and 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 you show me but you're at, you know what's going on. And I believe you. It's because you've appealed to our common humanity. You know, you, you, and, but the moment you, you know, pretty much talk down to me by saying I can't understand your lived experience, then we're like we're locked into our own, you know, intellectual wasteland, intellectual ghetto, if you will, and we can't cross that divide then with this standpoint epistemology. Mm-hmm. And I just mm-hmm. I don't I don't think Native yeah. people, a lot of the younger generation, have really thought it through. Like this is actually giving, um, 
like political power or uh, credence to actual racist ideologies already. And it's like I don't, what I was telling I was talking actually talking to my daughter it was about maybe three months ago. <clears throat> excuse me. And she had mentioned uh, kind of what we're talking about. And I said, my biggest fear is that is what if the so-called dominant group in society takes seriously this 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 critique, this critical race theory, and says, you know what, you're right. Part of my dominance is that I don't listen to an inferior group of people. And instead of relinquishing, they double down on tyranny. You know what I mean? Or they double down on it. And it's like you're actually empowering because of the standpoint of epistemology, this this lived experiences. You're you're actually giving power to these racist critiques of society. And it's like, no, this, this is there. This is this could start like a, a hot war, or a race war. And I, I, I want to avoid that at all costs. I've read enough history to know like the French Revolution, what's happened. And it's like this is ideas have consequences. You know, I mean. I've heard people say, no, it's just an idea. It's like, that's that's the most dangerous part of it. It is an idea. It's infectious. It catches on. And once it catches on, yeah. we're, we've got to stop it now in the theoretical stage. I mean, it's it's kind of already wedded to power as it is now. But if we can stop this, you know, and try to mitigate it, then we can hopefully save our civilization is how I look at it, you know, our, our customs and traditions. And I think there's enough within the Native community that if we can tap into that as Native people – that there's this whole, um, <laughs> I guess say cornucopia of, of ideas that, that really stand the test of time because they're appealing to basically liberal values, the liberal order of things, the classical liberal values that, you know, of an open society of freedom. That's what the, they're constantly appealing to is that treat us the same as you want to be treated under the law. You know, don't, there, there should be an exceptions for different classes of people. And I think Going down this other road, we're we seem to be heading down. Is like that we're that's going to all get done away with, and this is not good. So, hmm. yeah. if the BIPOC acronym and and all of the activism that that's appropriating uh, the indigenous story is doing so because the indigenous story does have a very strong claim um, mm -hmm. of oppression uh, and therefore a claim of resentment or reparation. Uh, how have you seen? Uh, the various native tribes uh, survive the temptation towards resentment um, and forge something that is not of that path. Like, mm, good question. Um, let's see. Historically. Well, I th I see that. I think that there's. Um, and see, I think this is where. I, how can I say? It? There's things within critical theory that I actually do agree with. And there's even certain postmodern ideas that I agree with, where I think, like within critical race theory, or critical legal studies, to be more specific, um, I actually do hold to, uh, like, um, what, uh, what's his name? The, the interest theory, uh, interest convergence theory of Derek Bell. And I hold to it, but I hold to it, but it's, it's I take it, I uproot it out of that critical race theory and apply it within the within the lens of a liberal classical liberal order. So I look at it through the lens of that. Yes, there is uh, there is oppression and there is an interest that uh, oh man, how am I trying to say this now? There's I'm not really nervous. <laughs> for some no, reason. <laughs> Sorry. But uh, yeah, remember like, this is a conversation. I know. So I know. Just yeah. Have to stash that. <laughs> so so there's so how I apply that is that I apply the interest convergence theory to the government, that the government is okay. the one 
that's that uh, emboldens these these plans and this idea. This and there is like Gramsci. There's this, there is this hegemonic power, but it's not in groups of people. It's you know it's consolidated in this one size fits all governmental model. And to okay. me, that's you know we, we, where I look at for that. So, what was your question again? Because uh, I kind of went off on a tangent. No, no, no. I think I think you're building a case. I, I was. Well, ultimately, I want to see to what degree, um, and again, it's not one size fits all, but what are some aspects of indigenous culture, indigenous life, indigenous spirituality that are resilient and resistant mm. to the to to resentment specifically? Yeah. But, oh, oh no, <clears throat> I okay. use history to apply that. Like, how is how has it been applied? In, yeah, you know, treaties and stuff like that. Oh, definitely. There's. Uh, I was going to say, I could go. One route would be like uh, humor. It's huge in native culture, a sense of humor. It's almost that that resilient sense of humor has caused has, has enabled natives to bend and flex, but not break. You know, even though they've suffered such horrible tragedies throughout the you know history of the United States, from the from the Trail of Tears to the Dawes Act, the Assimilation Era. You know, and finally, yeah. you come to like your, to go towards your question. You have the um, the sovereignty phase, where we're uh, self-determination era within Native history, where they start um, talking back to the government. They learn the system, if you will, and that's when they start applying the, the law back to itself and saying that okay. we want equal treatment. And there's this whole rich literature. Actually, actually, hold on, one, I have a book right here. Yeah, what what era? Do, or so like there's what this, decades this right here. are we we're talking about this it. self-determination? Yeah, so there's like this whole there's a whole group of books out there that are that are basic based around t um, learning the language, learning the, the the culture, the legal system, and using that to empower the reservation, uh, their their sense of autonomy and reasserting themselves, and that goes on during the determination self determination era, and so you see. Could you could you have some dates for this era? Oh yeah, that would probably be from about the nineteen. Let's see. I would say, when was 1970s? I would say actually 1976 up until now. Oh. Specifically with one case, the uh, Brian V. Itasca case, where uh, he was a Minnesota Chippewa tribe member and he had his trailer on uh, him and his wife on tribal land. And they received a letter in the mail that they owed back taxes. Like 100, it was $147.95 to be exact. And he took it to his district court. And then they lost. And they appealed it to the Minnesota Supreme Court. Lost, and it got appealed to the Supreme Court, and it was a unanimous decision that yeah, the state of Minnesota does not have the right to tax Indian land. This goes back to another law, Public Law 280. But at that time, uh, the I think it was Justice Brennan wrote in the the holding that states don't have the right to tax native native land, and also it that it actually opened up the door for you know for bingo. And opened up the door for gaming, and then that also opened. But that, then those are wonderful things in itself. But that opened up the door for re the reassertion of sovereignty. Is what is what actually the yes. root that lay underneath that was yeah. actually it was a reaffirmation of sovereignty. And from that, that was like a wedge in the legal system, if you will, that yeah. empowered Native American tribes once again to like. To, okay. So that was, and then from that point forward, it's just been kind of victory, like victory after victory. But there's also this is the whole thing with Native law. It's just there's not any one overarching interpretation of it because it's such a every state has a different relationship with their tribes in that state 
And the federal government has a different relationship. Like my own tribe, the, the Hopi tribe and the, my and my mom's tribe, the Crit tribe, they're they're uh, like like the Mojaves and Chimaways is where my mom is from. This is the Crit, the Colorado River Indian tribes. Uh, before it was just the Mojave and Chimaway tribe. And then that, that was founded, I think, in 1865 or 1868. And then in the 1930s, uh, they were told by the BIA, 1940s actually, told by the BIA, the Bureau of Indian Affairs, that if you don't get more natives into your enrollment, we're gonna re- you're, you're going to lose your tribe. And this happened across the board. So a lot of a lot of tribal constitutions are if you look at them, they just mimic the federal government's constitutions. It's like this top-down approach. And so they lost a lot of their traditional government, you know, governmental models. This is a part of that one size fits all. Yeah. And uh, so what happened is, uh, you had so the the, the Mojave and Chimaywis opened up their tribe to two other two other tribes, which is the Hopi and Navajo. And so at this point, um, and this is another thing, which is why I'm very adamant about like limited government. You know, is that so my grandparents. They actually met in boarding school. They were shipped away to boarding school. That was a whole other thing in itself. This is part of the assimilation era. And my grandfather, used to, when I was a little boy, he used to tell me that he remembered if he spoke Hopi, he'd get his mouth washed out with soap. They cut all their hair. It was just this, hor- this horrible experience. And so he, he met my grandmother there, and she was Miwok from the Miwok tribe. And they actually uh, eloped and got married, so they wouldn't get sent back to the boarding school. And so they got married at 15 and 16. And then they went back to the Hopi land, to, to First Mesa, uh, to Wapi, and then they built a house beneath Wapi, and it was called Five Houses because it was just five houses. <laughs> and then at this time, the, the 30s and 40s, there's word going out that there's land available down here on the Crit Reservation. So they travel down to the Crit Reservation, they, they relinquish their membership in the Hopi tribe, become Crit members. And so there's this constant, um, my, my point, my broader point is there's constant entanglement yeah. of the federal government of this like gigantic apparatus always like 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 screwing with or messing with tribes and it's it's throughout you see it all the time and so even today uh my trying to tie into my point here is that there's uh the uh what i'm trying to say here that the government is there's the government is constantly um uh, trying to reassert its power and so that so there's just there's uh, there's no monolithic interpretation of indian law because of that fact every state every 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 state every statue has a different effect on native culture so that's why we're the uh it's and this is why it's really important because if there if there's a certain injustice that's happening on a reservation somewhere before they take that case to their local court they have to be very careful and get with the other tribes and consult to make sure that what if this actually case does go all the way to the next level because oh, wow. this could affect not just that one tribe, but the entire Indian country. Okay. And this could have a horrible negative effect. So you almost have to live, like there's a famous book by, um, I think it's a David Wilkinson. And there's a Charles Wilkinson. And he, he, he talks about it's, uh, the Supreme Court's like a loaded weapon. Like the cases of the Supreme Court. And like you've got to be careful because they go, go, you know, it could go off at any time. And so you've got, I think he's quoting from a uh, Supreme Court justice, uh, I think the case is Korigatsu versus United States, or Korigama versus United States, and he's quoting that, and he's trying to make the case that when we, or as Native people, bring anything a case, we've got to be very careful there because this could affect the entire you know Indian country. So, hmm. yeah, that is that slows down the wheels of justice. That that's very inefficient. Mm-hmm. Well, that also they, goes. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. 
Oh, no, I say that also goes back to um, the Marshall trilogy, the famous uh, Chief Justice John Marshall, his three trilogy, his three cases. Uh, the Like Johnson v. McIntosh was the first case where he ruled that Native Americans have a right of occupancy to the land, but not a right of ownership. And so it's like, wait, okay, that it's like, and that's to me, it's like a form of injustice. Like you can live on the land, but it can be taken from you at any time. So you don't have fee simple, fee simple title. And so that's why, for me, that's why I kind of got into economics as, I, as I'm studying. It, I'm thinking, wait, why is that you have a city here and then right next door a reservation and you have booming prosperity and wealth creation. And then here you have, you know, third world poverty and grinding poverty. Yeah. And so I started looking at it and, th- and thinking, I know it's not the people, it's not the ethnicity, it's not the color of their skin, it's not their you know brain power. It's the institution. It's the institution of the reservation system itself. It's the all these formal institutions that are stopping the you know the the ability to create wealth and to to prosper and succeed in the twenty first century. And so there's a lot of, like I said, there's so many different avenues of yeah. uh, of federal oversight. You could you could say, and that's where I apply critical theory or critical race theory. I don't apply it to a group of people or someone's color of skin. I yeah. apply that for myself personally to the federal government. That's what I kind of like created my channel is like, take okay. some of these tools, uproot them out of this goofy worldview system and apply them within the classical liberal worldview system. Very and then precisely. We, yeah. And then we can, yeah, exactly. And then we can, yeah, then we can hone in on the injustice, yeah. you know, and then like, you know, um, like Brown versus board of education can go against the, you know, other, we can, uh, make amends or tear down like the Dred Scott decision, the same the same kind of way, and we can do that. You can apply that same principle with a native country the same way. So, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. I'm sorry, I was kind of hogging the conversation. <laughs> no, <laughs> there's no hogging. It's your conversation. <laughs> the um. That's another thing is like natives are really uh, I wouldn't say shy, but they're just really cautious, apprehensive, and so it's like. You know, what it's just, it's, just, it's like the people that I know that I have, have on my show, I've known them for years, so they're comfortable, but it's like, I'm having the hardest time uh, getting the people on my show because they're like, ah, oh, dude, I, I don't want to talk. And that's like how I feel now. It's like, okay, this is what it's like being on the receiving end. <laughs> oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it's all good. So yeah. yeah. The, well, there's a couple of thoughts that I had. Um, what you were just saying was that if critical theory mm. is misapplied within the within an entire generation of uh, native uh, youth then they will start to tear down the structures that afford them progress exactly. in a way exactly. so instead yeah. of instead of reforming the law and, and 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 actually not even reforming the law but but demanding that the law is applied equally mm-hmm. to them as you were outlying Mm-hmm. They will tear down the whole structure. There will be there will be no there will be nothing to work with. Exactly. Yeah. Except for these power dynamics. Um, and if you see down the road with how intersectionality works, it ultimately does corrode every culture by mm. demanding across the board acceptance of all these competing worldviews, including gender. Like, mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know to what extent any given, this is very low-hanging fruit, but when I was at Evergreen and I was learning about intersectionality and seeing all these activist groups work together and watching, like, how the uh, gender ideology was very dominant, I'm like, well, what happens when a traditional Native society that has, you know, a very particular relationship with 
male between males and females and, and different ways of describing that comes into conflict with queer theory, which wants to complete which sees that as completely oppressive. So that will erode from from the very root of culture, which is the interrelationship between men, men and women. Yep. It will erode that entire culture. So you, you know to teach the young people to be very careful with this yep. stuff and to to direct it directly at you know the the overextension of law or the misapplication of federal law or demanding that the federal law reform itself mm-hmm. um you know due to these kind of criti- critical uh theory techniques to to apply that would be correct to apply it to culture to yeah, the white exactly. man yeah, maybe yeah. maybe not will actually start to have all these inverse effects later on down the road. You know, I agree with you totally. It's like, um, you know, like I'm working on a series right now on uh, more of a nuanced perspective on natural law. but mm. Because natural law has also been abused. It's not that simple. There's, you know, like if you go back to the Marquis de Sade, sadism, he used natural law to justify that we could be as brutal as we wanted to be. Uh, and, he, and, he, and so it's like, there's, before you can have a natural law, you have to, you, you carry with you like your worldview, your presuppositions. And that's how you interpret natural law through. So it's yeah. not as simple as just affirming natural law, but I agree with you totally. Like there's within within native culture, um, you hit a what, you hit a point where you said, uh, wow, what was it you said? You, um, I can't. You just said something. This is, is what I do. Woman? Yeah, what, yeah. <laughs> this is this is the, this is what I do. People will talk to me, and I'm like, okay, yeah, I'm, my 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 mind is going, <laughs> and that's like, okay, it just drops out of my head. <laughs> It's like as you're talking, all these thoughts are you know sparking around in my head, and I just forget. Like, oh, great, this is wonderful. I'm very much like that too. Uh, you're in good company. Okay, good. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. Uh, we were talking about like the the roots of culture and uh, queer theory coming up against like a native culture, and uh, there's yeah. my other. Imp- uh, insight. And we'll just throw these things out. We can just scatter shot. Like there's okay. no linearity here. We can be completely okay. uh, Sounds good. You know, yeah. word association and just uh, pick up and turn over ideas, forget them, and then uh, watch them come back. But one thing I was just thinking, like listening to you speak, um, there's an element of spirituality that is about connection. Mm-hmm. And I don't know anything about native spirituality, but you earlier you were talking about Christianity, so I assume like the, that's something that that attracts yeah. you. Yeah. Um, well, that, okay. Like, okay, this is what I was going to talk about. So, within native culture, it's like you have there's a there's a truly is a, a natural diversity. There's no such thing as like a monolithic native culture. Like within my own family, my great great aunt was the first. Or was it my actually my third great 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 aunt was the was the first Hopi to translate the Bible into Hopi, so that would that like affected our family you know, right uh, our course of history, and then the sixteen Hopis that the families that traveled to the Mojave and Chimoavi reservation, they became part of the the church structure down there, and so that's filtered you know my my lineage comes from there, but also even like tribes themselves, like the Hopi tribe is matriarchal most most published are matriarchal some are patriarchal. Some have their their governmental model is is uh, horizontally based, and some are vertically based. Some rotate with amongst families. Well, like even the Hopi, if you say the the word tribe, it really doesn't apply to the Hopis because they view themselves as cl- separate clans. They come together as Hopi people, but it's separate clans, you know. So even the, even there, there's like a great diversity of of opinion and thought. So if somebody is 
native and they're Christian, or someone's native and they're you know, Jehovah's Witness, and native and they're into their traditional spirituality. Nobody looks at them as like, oh, you're 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 not really native, you know. You are there's even tribes that still exist today, like uh, I think the Miwok tribe, certain parts of the Miwok tribe, they don't have federal protection. They're not considered a federally federally recognized tribe, but we don't consider them. We don't say, oh, well, you're not native, you know. It's just because you don't have that laminate card that shows that you know you're tribal indian you know as long as and that's where another thing is like as long as tribes have the autonomy to define who's a member of the tribe that's fine by me that's how it should be if you want to go off blood quantum or if you want to go on uh, lineage or you want to go off both that's that's your determination i think that should be left to the tribes and it shouldn't be dictated from on high from the top down mm-hmm. and that again is where there's this great like i said earlier this great diversity of opinion uh and beliefs and so within, like, like your question of spirituality, there's a whole, um, within Native culture, like the traditional side, there's this, there, like, it's really tied to the land. That's really critical. That's almost like, I would say, I don't want, I want to be careful here and not overstate my case, but I would say that's like a defining characteristics of Natives in general is that they have a, they're, they're tied to the land in a way that's maybe different than most people, whereas they can, you know, they can go into the city work a job whatever but they always seem to want to come back to to their to their culture their customs their land what's familiar with to you know to them whereas and that's also changing because you have urban indians to this day also that's a whole another there's a whole bunch of books written about urban indian life and trying to like cross that divide where it's it's how can it like there's a famous book by charles eastman and he was a, a, a i think it was brule suit native and he was he actually i think he went to harvard and he became a doctor, and he wrote a bunch of books. And he was talking about even then this the struggle for identity, you know, that he was native, and he was living in the like the white man's world, but yeah. he had a, he had accepted some of the the culture, the institutions. But then as he started seeing some of the injustice that was happening, he he went back to his roots, you could say, his spirituality roots. So there's always that interplay there, and I feel like that even in my own life, like one of the reasons why I can't. Uh, abide by critical race theories because I'm also half, you know, I'm half non-native. I'm half white. My dad was German Scottish, so I'm not, I'm a I'm a breed. I'm a, I'm a half breed. I'm not full blooded, and I've always had the I've always felt like I had to walk this line between, like I don't have the luxury of accepting a theory that says half the population is racist, or you know I don't have the I don't have that easy anti-intellectual way out of saying yeah that. Uh, it's systemic racism. It's infrastructural racism. You know, it's institutional. It's like no, there's not. That's to me is again where that should be applied to the the branch of the, of the government. That once that that theory is applied and then trickles down throughout the rest of society, yeah, that's dangerous. Then, but hmm. that's not because of a certain class of people or a whole entire group of people are inherently racist. It's like, you know, I know from my own my own other side of my family that. They're, if anything, there's almost like they look at natives as being exotic and they revere them. Maybe that's a little bit bad too, you know what I mean? But it's the opposite direction, which like they hold them in high respect. I mean, that's the thing is you're always going to have those people who are like this continuum, right? The spectrum who who are going to be always be racist, and no matter what you do or say, they're going to be that way. But that doesn't mean that everybody is that way. So yeah, 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 yeah. <clears throat> I don't want to bring up this. This is so stupid. But what's your opinion on land acknowledgments? Well, what's that? no? What's that? What do you mean? Oh, land acknowledgments. Yeah. I don't um, know 
It's this. It's kind of a progressive ritual now that whenever there's a progressive event, they'll start the event by naming that we are on the land, uh, and oh then they'll they'll call out the native people. It it's just yeah, this new ceremony. That's cringy. That's cringy. You haven't seen I, I, it. It's pretty. No, I haven't okay. seen it. <laughs> it sounds something very cringy. No, I'm... there's the um. You were describing something that might give purchase or a different view or more nuanced and rich view of what it is to be liberal or what a liberal value is, specifically in the native in the native uh, communities. You have all these differences, and somehow they get along. And in a way, liberalism, classically perceived, mm. is all these differences somehow getting along. There's some sort of... Uh, you know, protocol of discourse. Uh, there's some sort of uh, respect or boundary in judging other people, uh, or you judge them based on one set of things and not on other set of things, such as belief. Belief is kind of uh, it's it. What what I hear is that I was just trying to think. Well, how do how do these communities operate together? Critical mm-hmm. race theory or critical theory would have them operate together against the man yeah. that they've been operating probably somewhat against or in, in defiance or in resistance. That probably is, is a part of how uh, the, the part of the social glue, but it seems like there's something more uh, that, mm. that is uh, not based on. Is that correct? Or um, I would say like my experiences with the, the, the two tribes I'm familiar with or the three tribes I'm familiar with the most and the, where I work at too, is there is a strong sense of community. That's just because you grew up there. It's not just a neighborhood. It's you have ancestral ties to the land, and so that you could say that right there is like this, like like Don was saying on the podcast, uh, and I've had other friends say the same thing that they come together and they have disagreements. I mean, they have they have really like knockdown, dragout fights, I don't know, physical fights, but they go at it. But when they vote on something, they come together as a community because it's about the community. It's and I don't want and I don't want and I don't think it's a collective or collectivism. It's more of a just an organic community, where there's the part of it is that there's disagreements, there's debate, there can be family members that don't like each other, but yet they still come together because it's about the whole community as a whole, what's best for the community. That's kind of like and ties it in with, and again that ties back into their, I would say rich historical heritage, that this is their community and this is their land. They can actually say this is my grandparent, my great grandparent, all the way down. They can trace their lineage. Uh, and and also they do have in common that kind of sense of um, defining themselves uh, through their oppression in, in a certain way and through which is which is I think is powerful, but that can also be dangerous because you don't yeah. want to just tie yourself to something that's negative. You need you need a positive affirmation of what it is that who you are. What do I believe in? Not just what I'm against. And that's kind of again why I'm critiquing critical race theory and this whole woke movement is because you really do need to define. What it is that you believe in, you know. What if it, you know? Because if you, once that fad goes away, and then all you're left with is I'm anti this, I'm against that. Well, then what are you actually standing for? <laughs> you know. So yeah. that's kind of yeah. where I think. And I think as far as like native culture, I think I would go again to almost all of my native friends. It's just this. We just click on this. Hmm. There's this level of sense of humor that is really okay. integral. I know. And actually, I'm I'm bringing this up because I'm also I'm right in the process of trying to write a book on the theory of humor when i think that like within native culture there's a unique something unique about 
their um, their ability to incorporate like there's the three dominant theories of sense of humor. There's the incongruity theory, the superiority theory, and the relief theory. And I see that as I'm dealing with native people constantly. I see all three elements. It's almost like it's this own epistemological way of viewing the world through the lens of humor. And it's like you see that, and that kind of like I can I can be on um, a powwow on the other side of the country or in San Diego and meet someone who's native, and right off the bat we yeah we just talk like that. There's just constant. Yeah. I mean that's old school, but there's this almost connection that you have with each other. And yeah. then as soon as, as soon as you meet someone at a potluck or at a dinner or whatever it is, you just like you just ease into it. You just know each other almost like they, you click quickly. I can't explain it. It's just yeah. it's a kind of a cultural thing, you know. But it's yeah. also I think it's beautiful at the, at the same time. It's really it's it's inspiring because it's like we're all, we're all the same. We're human beings, and that to me is like that's the the I, I don't know how to def, I don't know. Hmm. You know, this is going into, I'm bringing it in my mind, I'm thinking of uh, uh, Michael Polanyi's definition of tacit knowledge. There's certain things that we may not be able to articulate that are just, that are just there that you can't, you, you can, like you know, I was telling somebody one time, I can write a, I can write a treatise on how to ride a bicycle and give, you know, give you a PowerPoint and everything. But, I, but until you actually experience it, there's all this uh, knowledge that I'm not going to be able to capture. And it's like within the sense of humor, I don't know if anybody can actually. I'm I'm trying my best to articulate that, but I don't know if I can. You know. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. That that's that's <laughs> tricky. Like, how do you uh, how do you talk about humor without just being humorous? And yeah. then, what does humor do to these three uh, these three theories of humor? It's probably mock them relentlessly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. What's like what's the old saying is, uh, as soon as you. Uh, die, Explain a joke. You've you've dissected it, yeah, and killed it. Yes, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Same yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think yeah. I think humor and spirituality are something that you feel out that you can uh, you can really assess people. Spirituality is slightly different. It's kind of uh, I don't know to what extent people cultivate like kind of an understanding of. Uh, where that person is uh, in a, you know, kind of, I hate this word, but energetic sense, you know, like uh -huh. you can, you, you kind of feel that you, you pay attention yeah. to that and you can mm -hmm. uh, feel like either a kind of constriction, kind of a conflict in them or mm -hmm. that kind of thing going on or power uh, or a connection, uh, a quiet, a quietude or a peace, um, that kind of level of, of somebody. And then, and then the humor is another way of communicating in a way. And then there's a lot of different, there's a lot of different levels to humor in like, uh, in the frequency of it. Like, are you, is it kind of a worldview? Is it kind of an ontology in a way, like a way mm -hmm. of being, or is it kind of a way of playing around with words or kind of like disrupting things? There's a lot of different ways to do that. But when you do, it's really fascinating that you bring up that humor is something that is, uh, it might be an outgrowth of, uh, your, these cultures having been embattled and then having to subvert it on a very uh, yeah. primordial level that I'm sure that that might be a, a relevant theory, but there's something more than that too. Yeah, And you find that in, in black communities, I'm, I'm on this clubhouse app and there's a lot of just these black conversation rooms. And when you go into them, they have a completely different, um, mo of how they interrupt each other and how they laugh mm -hmm. and stuff that in the more intellectual climbs <laughs> the people are more like reserved quiet more like uh, uh they don't interrupt as much or that interruption is discordant in a intellectual argument whereas like in this kind of uh 
this community of people they're always interrupting and that's just yeah. kind of it yep. makes the community really alive and, and, and thriving in a way that uh, I don't see a lot in so-called white spaces or in my cultural spaces and stuff so yeah and that's a, that's a funny you say that because I've been a breed I've experienced both it's like I can uh, I, had, I have a real good uh, Mexican friend lady and she's uh, <laughs> she's always saying that you can blend into both cultures you know and I've experienced that where it's like, um, if I say something that's humorous in a native setting with fellow natives, they'll crack up and we'll laugh and we'll joke and tease, tease each other. And then you, I go and say that same thing, and it's like, they get looks like, oh, that's just inappropriate. <laughs> <laughs> or it's the opposite. I'll say a joke that's really funny in, in, a certain, in this culture. And I'll say it in another culture and say, that's not even funny. I'm like, it's funny, though, man. It's like, this is like, uh, I'm trying, it's like, there's this constant tension in, like, in a breed's mind. Huh. Yeah. Huh. I don't know to what extent I'm flexible in that way. I, I wonder if there's like a way to uh, assess yeah. that. I say, well, I think that humor is universal. Uh, first of all, everybody, you know, if, if you're a culture and you don't laugh, then like, that, that's really yeah. tragic. You know, so I, I agree yeah. with you. I think that. There's a definite universal element to laughter. And that's one of the things that I think this is a new discovery that I've found out recently that most of the philosophers from like Descartes, even all, all the way up to Nietzsche, they talk about a theory of, they have a theory of humor within their philosophical system. You know, Nietzsche has this, the, the gay science book, which is, you know, about laughter. Descartes talks about it. Emmanuel Kant talks about it. There's all the, and I'm like, I didn't even know this. Like, hmm. I'm just used to, you know, cogito ergo sum or the categorical, yeah. categorical imperative and all this, you know, yeah. refined language, epistemological language. And then I'm like, okay, this is new to me. So I was like, oh, there's a whole rich tradition here. And it's like, oh, let's tap into this. Let's, 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 let's synthesize this. That's what I, that's what I am. I'm more of a, I'm not a specialist in anyone. I mean, I am by trade a commercial electrician. That's all I am, you know. And I just want it's, I'm not, there's nothing special about me, so I'm not an expert on, on anything. But well, I, you know how to not get shocked at the very, very least. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, so I'm just like a I guess you could say like a generalist. I have like a wide, you know, branch of knowledge. I try to inform yeah. myself of different yeah. things, and I and I think that like you're saying like humor, it's just something that. It's almost like you either get it or you don't, and that's yeah, you know, and yeah. you can't explain it. But yeah, I think like, uh, I think like you were saying, like there's a uh, within what was that was it Substack you said the the app you're in. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's yeah. just a bunch of talk talking rooms. Talking yeah, that's chambers, like yeah. like I know even growing up, like because I we ended up settling in Florida, and so I lived uh, next to a black community, Eatonville, and. Almost all of my best friends were, were black dudes, and we played basketball and football together. And it's just that sense of humor that just always just cracked me up. I just can't yeah. explain it. It was just this this whole. It was just it was just richness to it, and it was just like man, it was just hilarious, and it was constantly mm. making me laugh. And people would be like, "Look, you even got Jay over there laughing at you." <laughs> it's like it's just, <laughs> stuff like that. But yeah, it really is. It really is the visa of. Uh of culture mm. if, if you have a sense of humor and if you have a malleable sense of humor where you can I, that's kind of how i connect to people is like you kind of fish around to make them laugh i remember i was uh this is in my dark phase in my nihilistic phase in my uh, lost to the world dark night of the soul phase i was playing a lot of online video games because i didn't want to deal with uh, all the emotions that i had to deal with and uh mm -hmm. you know and on this online video game you're playing with other people and i i noticed in myself that i'd get into this room with a bunch of strangers and we'd be on voice chat and i would 
like there was the problem that we're solving, you know, the dungeon or whatever that we're doing. But like my real game was like seeing if I can get every single person in that group to laugh. So I would keep oh, on like wow. making little statements and stuff until I got them all yeah. laughing. And then, and oh, then I felt good. like I felt complete in some way. I felt like I, I, I did my job. I got my achievement. <laughs> That's good. So if you if you can do that if you're that that there's something that that you can really connect to people if you can and then the whole cultural matrix uh, once yeah. you once you get a uh, your finger on the nerve of their yeah laughing mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. definitely yeah there's something that you said earlier that I think was really interesting I don't know too much about economics um, unfortunately I, I need to do a lot of learning about that but you said that the uh, federal government said that uh, natives can you know be on the land but they don't own the land yeah and, it's a right know, of one of the yeah most important like the primary building block of the wealth of nations is ownership is property mm-hmm. is it not and if you don't have that then you can't build up and yeah. and I think that there's psychological and then actual economic material, consequences to that because if you don't think that you actually own the land then you're not going to have a relationship of uh, Mm -hmm. not uh, not uh, exploiting it um, but of maximizing the potentials within that land exactly yeah well that's like there's um there's a um actually i think i have it right here somewhere yeah why nations fail there's a great (laughs) at the very beginning of it um uh the two authors they talk about um Nogales, Arizona, and you have it's split right in the middle by the border. On one side, you have grinding third world poverty, right? On the other side, you have uh, relative uh, uh, prosperity. Uh, and he's saying, what's the differences here? But in, so in the eliminate, uh, it's not ethnic because there's the same culture, the same skin color, the same religious background, uh, the same customs and habits. And so then the authors start asking the question, what is it that separates these almost identical people? These are identical people, but yet there's, an, there's this border that's now sitting there. And yet one side is relatively prosperous, the other side is r- extremely poor in poverty. And yet they argue that it's the institutions. And it's like the rule of law, the ability to have alienable property, that you can also pull your resources together. And there's, uh, I'm also thinking in my mind of Hernando de Soto, wrote a great book years ago called The Mystery of Capital. And he went to uh, third world countries, and he showed how he showed how much legal red tape you have to go through just to be able to pull your resources together to to get a title, to get actually a formal copy of a title. Yeah. And so people just they go they go around it, and so you have all this uh, dead capital sitting there that could be pulled together, and you could start a business with, or you know, and that, these these things mm-hmm. just multiply. And then you see this on the reservation where. Um, throughout the United States, where you have the right of occupancy, which can be extinguished at any time of the federal government. That's basically what the Johnson v. McIntosh. And then you have the trilogy. You have the, uh, uh, what is it, the, George, the Cherokee, uh, Cherokee Nation uh, v. Worcester case. And then you have another case. And it's just, it's solidified into, like, into cement the fact that natives cannot pull their resources together. So you have all this land, and they can, but they have to go and get permission from Washington. So again, that's that paternalistic element. Yeah. Like there, there was a famous case. Uh, I think it was in uh, late '90s that was finally settled. Actually, no, 2000, 2004, I believe. Uh, the Cobell settlement, uh, where Eloise Cobell, she was a Blackfoot Indian, she sued the federal government and became a class action lawsuit because 
all the timber mining rights that natives have, uh, before they can get a paycheck from the leasing out of their land, that money has to go first back to Washington, D.C., and they send it back to the tribes. Well, there was billions upon billions upon billions of dollars. I forget the actual estimate. That was just not accounted for. It was just gone, missing. It was appropriated somewhere, misappropriated. And so they won the, they won the case. I think it was $3.4 billion they won, but it was like a drop in the bucket compared to what... And then this is a good, good example of the entanglement, the, the patchwork, maze work of the overlapping regulatory wow. structure is that if you were native, you could get part of, and you could prove that, that you were uh, um, affected by the settlement, by the misappropriation of money. So you signed up, and then when you signed your name to it, you get like in the mail, I don't know, $1,000, $1,500, $2,000, part of the settlement. But then what happened is, so the government created another provision where if you signed up to this, uh, you were now on the law books, and your land that you had uh, claimed title to can now also be... So the reason why I know this is because at the time I was uh, I was dating someone who was Taos, and uh, she was trying to build her house. And it took us two years to get all the signatures for the right-of-way to easement to her property. Huh. And you get you get to the point where it's like, what's the point of this? Like you, you So it, it got to the point yeah. where she had to send off to... Actually, I was talking to another friend of mine, and she said, uh, what you need to do... And she goes, I hate to say this, but this is what I mean. This is how bad it gets, is that you need to go to a wake or a funeral within the family and then you'll find all the other old relatives that will come out of the woodwork to, to attend the funeral because you, you just you can't get to hold of them because we you know they're either they're either unreachable or they're living somewhere on, on some part of the reservation or they move somewhere else they have disconnected phone number but then they find out about a funeral of a family member then they all of a sudden show up well you need that signature before you can proceed and we're talking about like I have a table here like six foot by four foot table if you have that much land, now you need the, also their signature and their signature, and so it's just you. Wow. So the so the it's dis, so you're disincent economically. You're you're disincentivized from even doing anything. And that's just, just I remember she finally got her house built, and that was like she, I remember when she got the paperwork. It was like a celebration in itself just to get the, <laughs> that process finalized. Oh, no. But that's what I mean. It's like and you, it's like the uh, what is it? Squeaky wheel gets the grease. You know, it's the yeah. same kind of thing. It's like and that's just one microcosm example of what's on a massive scale that's constantly happening oh, within the you know, reservation and it's just like we've got a system oh, that's God. broken and it's not and it's yeah. it's still that same way and that's where I, again where I, i'm trying to apply those those critical theories like mm -hmm. i said uproot them and apply them properly because yeah. you know? i yeah. think there's a lot yeah. there's a lot of insight like i even agree with i know this is going to shock people but the franz fanon the famous sociologist i don't agree with his violence approach or anything like that but his understanding of the colonized, decolonized mind, uh, yes, okay. uh, and that it sets up like this dichotomy, and that you've you've used it as a lens to filter um, like an inferior race through, and then even uh, I agree with something that um, Edward Said wrote in his book Orientalism, and that there's this concept of the other, and that you see that with and you see it within the language uh, of Johnson v. McIntosh, and all the way down even even in, in certain presidents. It's very overtly racist language, you okay. know, that they refer to natives as like as a, a savage, uh, as backwards, as inferior, as a, a, like, uh, I think the Cherokee Nation versus um, the title, I forget the name of it. Uh, there's a statement in there where they refer, where Johnson, the Supreme Court Justice, refers to Native, Native Americans as a ward to a guardian. Like, like we need the approval of the federal government at every level. And that's where I think it's like that right there, if we can cleanse 
that language and strike it from from the Constitution, from these Supreme Court cases. And until that happens, we're still going to be battling this this yeah. patchwork maze work of uh, overlapping regulation and laws and legislation. Yeah, yeah, and if if you don't do it carefully, you'll just reinstate that language inverted. You'll just call mm-hmm. everything white supremacist, and then exactly, yeah, and that's like, yeah, I don't want that. That's like then we're going to it's like it seems to be within from my study of history, my small little is that the pendulum always swings from one extreme <laughs> to the other. It's like we're only in the middle very shortly. It's like we just go off this way, like like I was studying the, the Romantic movement, which I love, and it's like Romanticism. Is a rejection of the neoclassical movement, and but then it goes to the grotesque and the absurd, which I still I still like it. But yeah, it's yeah. like we we're, it's like, yeah we're breaking free from the shackles of this. You know, everything has to be iambic pentameter, and everything's perfectly laid out, mm-hmm. and the art has mm-hmm. to be form and function. It's like that's still stifling as an artist. And so we can swing the other way, but say, like, okay, great. And then we swing to the far extreme. And then like, all of a sudden you're getting syphilis and yeah, an opiate exactly, addict. Exactly. <laughs> Good job there, Moliard. Yeah. Not Moliard, the other guy. Huh. Yeah. yeah. There, there's a lot of ways to bring light to this and to get people uh, educated in this Uh in the particular struggles of the native community, just like brute force education. And by, by brute force education, I mean, just like conversations, Yeah, just having conversations and, and looking at these things. And, and it's pretty obvious that what you just laid out now about all that red tape is egregious. Uh, mm-hmm. It's wrong. And, and, and it's also actively, destroying capital uh by which i mean potential of this community to own itself to to uplift itself another thing that i'm worried about with regards to critical race theory is this tendency within certain uh levels of it certain thinkers and activists to cast the entire order as supremacist right yeah. uh, w- mm-hmm. we need to reject the entire order so you get to this point where it gets really really weird where showing up to work on time yeah or having a, having a spirituality or uh, being responsible to yourself or uh, think basing your judgments on merit um all those things are you know uh, the whole smithsonian document yeah yeah, yeah, the, yeah. these really powerful institutions are promoting this incredibly racist stuff um yeah. so it's and that's so easily debunked because natives, uh, I think even I was listening to an episode of Tim Pool and he's like, I think he's um, part Korean. And he said, yeah. we've had timetables, you know, it's like, yeah, we do too. Like natives and indigenous people, minorities have had timetables. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, we're doing math. Exactly. We're like, we had a calendar <laughs> system. It's not like, like, yeah, it's not, it's not, it's not racist to believe in being on time. It's like, what is, there yeah. is. Now there is a difference, I would say, in, in, pace. in a, yeah, in a general sense, yeah. where there's I get that. maybe there's definitely not this uh, constant rush that there is. Uh, like native cultures tend to be uh, a slower-paced culture because yeah. of the just the upbringing, the ties to the land. There's a lot of other factors where where they don't have that sense of like just constantly pushing, pushing drive of competitiveness. Yeah, uh, but. It's not absolute. It's a continuum again. It's not like, yeah. and so that's like, like to your point. There's this. It's just like, how do you people believe that? I just, I'm, I'm literally like, I don't see how. <laughs> well, this it's is just possible. it's othering. It's it's the same principle of othering. It's yeah, that, reverse. Yeah, yeah. It's just it's reversed, and it's yeah. kind of uh, the only way to to break that down is to you know be adults about it. Um, 
And, and also, so there is a lot of work to change the language in the government and to, uh, and even to a certain respect, call out white supremacy where it is or European centric thinking, uh, as there's this dominant culture, call that out and take that out. Mm-hmm. The problem with anti-racism is that it, it, reifies that in another form it doesn't just like diffuse the bomb it it, another thing i wanted to point out like all that red tape that you were just describing Mm -hmm. all the crt stuff is just going to put diversity officers in that bureaucracy it's just going to bloat the bureaucracy even further well my my biggest fear is that if natives start buying into it more and more it's going to tear apart their own tribes you're going to start seeing division not only within family we already see and i know i know families that like it's the whole reason one of the reasons why I really started this channel was, like, like I said earlier, is this: it was a way to get uh, codify what's going mm-hmm. on to my friends, you know, my, my small circle of friends, uh, you know, and then get it out to the people that I work with and people that I know on different reservations. It was just for really just for them, and it's it's happening now where you see families, you know, the older generation are like looking with bewilderment upon this younger generation. They're like, this is like. And there's some that I think are buying into the older generation because they're like, yeah, that makes sense. This is, you know, the AIM movement, militant, you know, it's like, no, this is not, we don't want this. <laughs> this is the, this is the exact opposite. This will destroy the tribe from within because then it'll make this, well, like I said before, we have this community, community-based approach. Well, critical race theory is like this virus that will say, okay, either you're with us or against us. So now all of a sudden we have this, this uh, artificial split in the tribe and that'll just get more and more atomistic. Until we're, you know, well, maybe that's actually the way we have to do it to eliminate. It's just this isolate the, the virus, the mind virus, until it's just finally gone. But yeah. and before it does that, it's going to do so much damage. And it's like, yeah, you, you want a unified front, but it's a unified yeah. front based upon all this diversity of opinion and beliefs. You don't want to, you don't want this unity that's artificial or that's just t- tearing itself apart within the tribe. And that's that's my biggest fear is that. And I think it's, and I'm not trying to belittle those people. But I don't think that they've thought this through far enough. They, they, they mm-hmm. haven't reduced it to the absurd, reductio ad absurdum. And yeah. it's like, no, take this, uh, take this idea and actually apply it consistently, and see where it leads to. At least, horrific uh, results. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's different modes of uh, work uh, to counter uh, something like uh, critical race theory, which is like to borrow from James Lindsay, it's, it's postmodernism or Marxism, even cultural Marxism. It's like an acid. Mm-hmm. And, and if you have the right glove on and you keep it in the right container, you, you know where to apply it to the rust. Like it can actually do, yeah. do wonders to, to work, but anything beyond that, it's going to start corroding everything. So there's, yeah. there's a way of um, countering that by one, trying to teach people that this is what it does. This is how it operates. So like this education model, there's uh there's the criticism model which is little which is like the education but it comes packaged in like mockery or you know just straight out like you know just a polemic against it there's also a way of working against it that doesn't go directly against it but but preserves preserves Mm -hmm. the good uh uplifts the good platforms the good uh platforms the positive values and does a lot of work saying okay here here's the community that i want to preserve and then here's you know and here's all the complexities and the conversations and and the way it goes and the preservation mode and then there's also the education mode that's a little bit uh 
little bit stronger than that and says, okay, here's the, here's the principal values. Yeah. Here's how we get there, like philosophy, logic, and then here's the outgrowth, uh, all the aesthetics and the art forms uh, that are produced in, in this culture and like more educative and stuff like that. Yeah, well, I'd, uh, I'd say like there's, um, like there's, I think one of the good things to do would be to point, pinpoint certain ideas within postmodernism that I know, you know, this is, I'm actually going to produce a video eventually on hmm. some of the, the good things within postmodernism. Like, I actually do think that uh, Foucault's idea, as if, yeah, Foucault's idea of heterotopia, this concept of heterotopia, of like a mirrored reality, an alternate reality within a reality, like in between the borders between one culture and another. And hmm. I, I'm, I'm applying this concept, like, hmm. you had the boarding school experience, right? So at the same time, you have in the dominant culture, if you will, according to Foucault, you have, you have um, kids going off to school and they're going and they're being taught in a safe environment. Uh, they have, there's parental oversight, authority. They're being, they have a, a lunch prepared for them or they bring their lunch. Then they're released back home. There's always a safe environment they're taken care of. There's always, there's knowledge dispersion happening there. There's objective standards. There's always some sort of oversight. Then you also have this heterotopic, uh, reality is happening at the same time with Native Americans being shipped sometimes 500, 1,000 miles, 2,000 miles away from the reservation. I mean, ripped from their homes, completely ripped. That was the split actually within my tribe, the Hopis, mm -hmm. was that my great-great-uncle, he actually, him and the uh, 19 traditionalists, they opposed the boarding school experience. And so you have this this Native kid who's you know, five years old, this little boy or girl, gets their head cut, shaved, everything, they're crying, screaming. And they're sent off to a boarding school. They're whipped, beaten. There's no parental oversight. And it's even such horrible things as if the child gets smallpox or dies, all the, all the, uh, the parents get is a letter in the mail that's so, sorry to inform you that your, your child's died. And so you can come visit the, the, the grave site. I mean, this is horrible stuff. If, uh, there's, all, there's a whole bunch of literature about this as well. But mm -hmm. it's, so I think when I'm getting back to my point here, I'm getting, I do this all the time. I get off on these tangents. I but, love it. I love it. I love it. <laughs> But there's <laughs> a, so like Foucault's idea of heterotopia, I think really is good there because it, it kind of I'm not saying that the concept in itself is like we need to hold to it in, in an absolute principle, but it does as an idea. It gives you a different lens to see reality through. You know, you, you, okay. you, know, you grasp my how, point. How, do, how does that idea of heterotopia encapsulate the boarding school or the assimilationist? Well, because well, you've got this, uh, this you've got two all you've got two realities. You've got a secure, safe setting where children okay. are being, you know, oversaw with parental authority, and you have this completely opposite, uh, alternate, in between the lines of reality that's taking place, yeah. where kids are basically being abducted from their homes. And I've, I've told people like this: Would you, as a parent, allow the federal government into your home, or would you fight against them to, to rip your children from your own clutches, from your own hands, and be shipped away, you know, to a boarding school to have their mouth washed out with soap if they spoke the language yeah. to completely destroy the culture from within is what is the part of the assimilation era yeah. and that's actually what i see happening in my next video i'm going to be talking about the pedagogy of discomfort uh but hmm. it's, it's another concept is that i see that as, as i don't i don't if i say this i don't want to offend everybody but it's almost as if these far left progressives have just reinvented the technique of assimilation again with this this concept this critical pedagogy this, and I know for them, they think they know it's this is liberation. It's like, no, from my point of view, you know, this this whole uh, 
uh, a tearing down of someone's belief system, this deconstructing of their tradition, that's actually uh, that you. This is the same thing that already took place in the 1880s, 1890s, up to the 1920s and 30s. That's all. It's a part of this assimilation era, and it's mm-hmm. like wait, we've, you've simply you've simply regurgitated what we've already gone through. Why, you know, it's not mm-hmm. just. Yeah, but now now the kids are going to do it to their parents. Yeah, it's, yeah, exactly from the bottom up. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I shouldn't be laughing. That's actually very tragic. Like, that's what's no, happening. It's, now. Yeah, it's pernicious. It, no, yeah. it's ha- and and at least at this point, <laughs> the, the the entire country is going to go through it. So, well, yeah, exactly. The white culture is going to be destroyed along with it. So, yeah, it's, so, big, it's like it's we're leveling. We're just rearranging chairs on the Titanic or something. Yeah, uh, yeah. You you have so much going on. It sounds like you're really throwing yourself into this work. Yeah, and it, it seems like um, you're in this kind of third period, or maybe the the ripening of the second period. You, you mentioned three periods. What were they? The the aesthetic. Uh, the, there's the aesthetic period, the ethical period, and then the religious period. And the Kierkegaard oh. says that the kind of Kierkegaard says that these three stages of existence kind of jive up with with uh, like youthhood. Like you're living for the moment, just the here and now. The hikik nuke, you're just constantly uh, hikik nuke. You're just partying, you know what I mean? And it's like, yeah, and yeah. some people don't go through that at all. I just, I did. I was a complete <laughs> moron. I lived for the Fridays and Saturdays. That's why I got, I got in construction because as an electrician, I could get paid on Fridays, and I would, that was it. I didn't have to work the weekends. I could just blow my paycheck. I was a total moron, oh, no. and then uh, still am. And then. Uh, it's like the the next day of of existence is if you 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 end up it's like that hedonistic paradox is what it is like there's the pl- pleasure principle applied to its extreme like if you're constantly waking up uh, hungover and tired eventually you reach a point where it's like okay you need do I need to adopt this epicurean lifestyle where I mitigate and balance my hedonistic pleasure or do I move on to the next stage into the, like the ethical stage like a higher higher plane of existence that there's there's more than just pleasing myself, you know. There's more than just party, and so there's also the the ethical stage. Is that there's this next stage where you realize uh, you 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 try to try to become enculturated. You go to you start you study art and culture. You start reading books, and then a lot of people will just will stay in that stage. It was just fine. It's, Kierkegaard's not saying these are absolute principles. There's no you know clear boundary here. And then the next stage is the religious stage where you start realizing. That it's not enough just to study art and literature and politics. That there has to be some something underneath it that grounds it, that gives it meaning. Like I really look at today as like we're in a crisis of meaning, and that everybody's struggling really tenaciously because uh, we're human to to figure out what is my what is my story, you know, what is my plot in life? What, what, is there more to it that I'm just supposed to make stuff up in my head and just believe it against, you know, that's like this existential leap? And so Kierkegaard talked about the religious stage. And this is why I disagree with him. And I, I think his book *Fear and Trembling* is an amazing book, and his his understanding of what happened to uh, Abraham in the Old Testament. But I don't agree with his definition of faith. I don't. I've never believed. I never believed in this. Faith is just some. You close your eyes and you just jump, and it's yeah. just existentially. I don't view that. I think I personally, I view faith in God, our Creator, as is based upon evidence, reason. It's, uh, there's actual substance there. It's not just, you know, I'm just going to hold my nose and jump into the deep end. Hmm. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I would definitely say that's, uh, I'm in, yeah, probably like in the third stage now <laughs> of my existence. 
Huh. Well, how does that tie into becoming a teacher then, which is kind of what you're doing, or at least a journalist in the very, very least? Uh, well, that, that was see that, that was the thing is I actually was going back to college. My goal was to get my doctorates at that time. This is like, um, gosh, now this was probably 15 years ago. Was to get uh, my doctorates in either economics, and then a, either a minor in literature, or in philosophy. And so I I I passed into all these higher level classes, and it was the opposite of what I was like. Wait, I'm missing Monday night football, going to night school, <laughs> and instead I'm there's no there's no substance here. I wasn't being taught anything that I didn't already know. I'm not saying because I'm brilliant because I'm not, but it was like the teachers in my classroom. There, even this is back then in the in the early 2000s, they were busy proselytizing their positions. And I'm like, this is not what I, I didn't sign up for this. this and I did, have a, I did have some really good teachers. I had a really great American Indian law teacher <laughs> and a great uh, teacher on the French Revolution. That's what sparked the study in the French Revolution. You should have them on. Yeah, I know. If I can get a hold of them, yeah. My, I have my old professor's contacts. Uh, he's just a <laughs> phenomenal professor. But um, yeah, so that's where I was. My actual <laughs> goal was I, I think I discovered early in my late 20s that I wanted to be a teacher. That I was like, I'm going to get out of the construction trade and get into teaching. And then I went to school for it, and I was just like, okay, this is not, this is, uh, I'm seeing the writing, the, writing, writing on the wall. This is not what I want to do. So I was like, oh, no, no, I don't, I don't want to, I forgot, I saw I became like a guerrilla teacher, guerrilla warfare teacher, and teaching behind enemy lines, if you will. Yeah, <laughs> so. Pro, yeah pirate, pirate professor. <laughs> yeah, so, Welcome and then like I said, I, I'm a generalist. I don't hold, I don't, and this is one, mm -hmm. one of my fundamental beliefs is that, you know, knowledge is one thing, and it's important, but wisdom is everything. You know, here's knowledge and here's wisdom. Wisdom is everything. If you don't integrate that knowledge into other, uh, other, other sectors, I don't know the word I'm looking for here, but you, you're missing out on, on, on so much more. It's like, yeah, you know, <laughs> going to criticize somebody, but like, like, yeah, like Fauci is definitely an expert in his field. But you need to be able to pull that chunk of information information out and apply it consistently as a whole, as a holistic, you know, belief system. And I fear that's where with this notion that the expert and I've seen throughout history, you've had experts speak upon a certain topic, and they're really good in that topic. But once you get them out of that field, it's a nightmare. It's like they're constantly wrong. <laughs> it's like that. Mm -hmm. I think we need a more generalistic approach to knowledge. That's kind of also what I'm trying to provide. But yeah, I think that. So that's my path to it. I figured it's a, I created the channel for my friends, basically, and it also is a way for selfishly to, to just get my own ideas out there into the world and see what happens. Yeah. Have some influence. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it's a way to yeah. fulfill my, I think, my own calling to be a teacher. Yeah. And like I said, I, I am not an expert on anything, any subject. If I learn something, I have to really dig deep into the minutiae and get down into it before yeah. I feel comfortable finally bringing it out into the world. So that's why I, I you know, go so long without uh, posting a video because I want to make sure that I'm actually grasping this. Mm -hmm. I don't want to be one of those guys who just putting out material and then gets refuted. No. <laughs> 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 Not you, Benjamin. You're really... <laughs> no, that's kind of what I do. No, you don't. No, you don't. Actually, you do really good work. You do. I, oh, I've, I've followed you probably for about, <laughs> probably about nine months to a year. Uh, I think. Yeah, it's probably about a year because, uh, no, it's been longer than that. Yeah, it's been longer than that. But I think once we got the whole COVID thing hit, we got sent home from work where I work at, 
mm-hmm. and it was just like okay youtube 24 7 and it was just like yeah. okay that's I just started discovering all these different great channels like oh my gosh these are really good so yeah no you do fantastic work i, no, I was fishing for a compliment oh. i was making fun of myself no, <laughs> no man i like that episode that you were just riffing, I was like, dude, this guy's got really good stuff. I was just constantly writing stuff down and researching. And then I actually went and bought the book for my son to have him read uh, mm. uh, Infinite Jest. It's mm. just like, you know, it's also just that, that to me is the beauty of learning. This whole this whole YouTube community is if it lasts, is that it's just like just constant bombardment of dynamic ideas bouncing off each other. And that to me is what learning is about. That's what education really is, is that you have someone who embodies mm. those like three principles of ethos, pathos, and logos, and that they come across as, the, uh, as that they're caring and that they don't overreach their boundaries, they don't overstep their boundaries, and that there's this uh, logical presentation of the material. And it's just that, to me, that's the whole beauty of, again, of just of, of the uh, learning stuff. And that's what, that to me is like, I have, when I learn something, I have this urge to want to share it with everybody. And it's like, that's probably very annoying to everybody else. But it's like, I just, like, I learned something. It's like, oh my gosh, you gotta hear it. They're like, oh my God, please, Jason, shut up. <laughs> so. Well, see, that's the, that's the real beauty, uh, the positive beauty of uh, this terrible technology that we have now, this social media stuff, is that you get to not just annoy your cl- close fellows. You get to annoy everybody. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and, in, and in casting your per- pearls to all the animals you'll yeah. find the ones that are that yeah. are that are your style I, I figure eventually i'll get to start getting some good criticism on my channel I'll be, oh wow what is this i'll be you know i don't i'm too old to care about like uh what oh, people yeah. you know, i mean i care about what people say i just don't want to say that but, but you're looking for the substantive uh yeah pushback yeah in, in in some way yeah if no. you leave a comment on my yeah. channel and you're like you're an idiot it's like wow well, consider the source yeah i don't really care i've been through too much in life to worry about what you're gonna say that's like <laughs> I think James Lindsay was saying on your last with you and local was, or was the previous one about, we just need people to stand up and be courageous. And that's what shocked me as I was talking to a very good friend of mine. And, uh, we both had the same view that there'd be more people coming out of the woodwork with the whole shutdowns with the economy, with the COVID restrictions. And I was just kind of, I guess, naive thinking that most people valued freedom and that they'd all rise up against it. And I started, and then, I start realizing that there's a lot of people that don't want to speak out about anything. They, they agree in private with you, but when it comes to a public, you know, presentation of it, which I, I mean, I get, I'm not critiquing that, but it's like, man, speak out if you see injustice, you know, um, I, I don't, you know, I was raised where my dad used to teach me that, um, you know, a brave man dies once, but a coward dies multiple times, you know, and it's like, you, you just stand up, you know, for what's right and in what you believe in. So I don't know. I just look at the, What's going on right now is like, and this is a thing. I, I and I don't know if the more I plug into Twitter, is it is it a problem in Twitter or is it a problem in the world? It's like, okay, what, am I in a, a in a simulation here or is this something that's mm-hmm. actually? Because I've talked to a lot of people, even within my own family, who don't believe that it's as big as a problem as it is. I'm like, no, trust me, it is. Like even Coca Cola is doing this. Even all these companies are instituting these these programs, and it's like. And once I start talking about that, like I think you said earlier, like the whole civil rights movement, I've had to tell people like, no, this is not. And I've actually had people say, you know, how could you be against this movement when it's just an extension of the civil rights movement, critical race theory? And I'm like, no, it's actually it's not. There's, I can show you explicitly where they disavow that movement, where they criticize Martin Luther King's colorblind you know, speech, uh, where they criticize people from using it. 
there's there's actually explicit areas within certain books that I can show you that this is not. They disavow that completely. They look at that as being too incremental, not working, and based upon a completely different foundation or worldview. So I, I tell people that, and it's like, and then that, if, and that's I guess part of the teaching part of it. Like this is because I do view this. Like for now, my channel is devoted to this critical race theory stuff because I really do view this as dangerous and that we've got to try to mitigate this or stop it in its tracks because civilization is to me teetering on the edge right here like if we go down this road and it's happened to other other cultures it's happened to you know mm-hmm. the bolshevik mm-hmm. revolution uh the the cultural struggles of, of mao's chinese cultural revolution uh in 1848 there was a bunch of revolutions that happened across the board uh and throughout europe uh so everywhere you, you start looking, you start seeing that these ideas have powerful consequences. They can have disastrous consequences for society. So, mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. so I, you know, I'm sorry to lean so heavily on your um, your native ties and your native oh, no. uh, ism and and that part of you. Um, but just topically, um, how do we go forward in the United States? What do you think is the most important thing uh, for the average American citizen to understand about the relationship between America and the tribes and what we need to fix about that and how we should you know, conceive of the problem, mm-hmm. conceive of the tensions, let's say, instead of just throwing it all in a problem, and then start to go towards a path towards uh, uniting that. Yeah. Um, see, this is where, again, it's... Because uh, there there was the termination era within Native American Indian country where the the federal government was going to abolish the tribes and just give out the land to the natives, which, which almost sounds exactly what I'm going for, but it's not because... Hmm. We've also seen throughout history, like with Andrew Andrew Jackson, Jackson, with his his, his blatant uh, disregard of the Supreme Court decision, which was which became the Trail of Tears. So what I'm saying is that it's almost like we also need um, injunction or not injunction, but uh, understanding at the federal level. But that, that that doesn't take away from the state level, because the state, let's say the federal government says we're going to pull back and let you run your own tribe. Well, then that that's still is still another level of, of, of potential problem or tyranny, which is the state level, because we saw that in Georgia uh, back in the 1820s and 30s and 40s. Uh, so there's a, so I guess the, my overall my overall point is that there's multiple levels where um, we need to push for justice and reform of the law, but I think it just comes down to education and educating people uh, about the. Like I said, like this is what, again why I'm trying to bring in economics into into my platform and to my channel is that there's a whole school called uh, new institute new institutional economics, which deals with institutions not just hmm. not just formal institutions but informal institutions. And this is where I have really fascinating talks with a lot of Native people, is that they'll actually disagree with with their own tribal government or their tribal policy, but they're they're like trying to figure out how to critique their tribe without giving um it's almost like they're walking this tightrope they want to critique their the maybe the practices or customs or some of the actual ancient traditions that they think is holding the tribe back but they've got to be very careful because they don't want to seem as if they're um uh buying into the dominant culture critique you know what i mean and also at the same time 
they don't want to relinquish what they feel is their uniqueness as native people. So they're trying to work out at the same time this this kind of dynamic interplay between tradition and change. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And modernization and without exactly, yeah. the li- liquidation of uh, mm-hmm. and so that's the flavor of that culture. Yeah, yeah so that, that's another thing. Um, so I think, uh, um, and then also for me personally, like uh, there's a whole school of economics uh, called public choice economics, which actually analyzes, takes the, the, the beliefs or the, the ideas or concepts from economics and applies it to the federal government or to any state government, any government agency, if you will, and says that there's a principal agent problem, there's asymmetry of information, uh, there's these problems in one-size-fits-all models. And to me, that's exactly where uh, I think exposing that, getting that idea, giving it to light beyond just the academia, because a lot of times I come across these ideas and it's just like you only hear about it in the ivory tower of academia, and it hasn't trickled out to the mainstream of culture, and then it, ha- it hasn't even trickled out, trickled out at all to native culture. Yeah. It's a completely like foreign concept. I'm not saying that the wrong ones trickled out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, yeah, you unleashed <laughs> the wrong virus. Yeah. <laughs> you didn't do the one that turns us into superheroes. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think huh. it's, it comes down to education, and but I don't mean education in like a. Uh, Formalized like, sense. Yeah, for yeah, I just yeah. I guess this is where I'm looking at the opportunity with YouTube and however yeah, this yeah, goes yeah. is being a platform to get get those ideas out there because there's a lot of very valuable ideas and I I view economics as being just as based upon indubitable laws just as physics is like the law of supply and demand you know those are there's certain laws that you can you can't violate that if you violate them there's a consequence to them. I mean, you can say in your mind, I don't believe in the law of gravity, but as soon as you jump out of a window, you know, gravity's going to take over. You can violate the law of supply and demand. You can inflate the money supply, but there's a, eventually, an, uh, there's actually a negative consequence to that eventually. It's going to reap the, reap the horrible benefits of it, or the consequences. Yeah. So I would say that for me, or for natives in general, I would say it's to become more adept at some of those great theories out there, these great ideas and concepts that would benefit tribes and I think right now there's there's a lot of being work being done in the legal in the legal sense where a lot of tribes are fi- trying to figure out ways to expand their sovereignty on their community. But it's again it's that tightrope. Um, it's not just the tightrope of themselves struggling how to create their own identity, but that tightrope also of uh, the the overlap between federal and state yeah. because there can still be throughout the history of native culture just because the federal government says we're going to protect you a state can say nope we don't care we're, we're gonna like to this day i know native people to this day that will uh if they get a 20 dollar bill with andrew jackson's face on it they'll, they'll flick the face or if you ever see a 20 dollar bill with with the, with the x'd out that's because it's usually i mean that's not not always but that's usually because they still to this day can't stand andrew jackson you know for yeah. what he did yeah 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 there's a there's also a tightrope between um I guess, like with with any of these, uh, the, the the truth of actual harm that has been perpetrated against the native communities by the, the United States government and by the people in the government, there's a tightrope to be walked between owning up to that 
and and going towards settling that bad blood or somehow exhausting that bad bad blood and there's something very per- pernicious that wants to capitalize on that without ever like even kind of trying to concentrate that bad blood and i worry about that and i think part of the solution for me is to run towards my ignorance and run towards my uh discomfort in 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 my own time my own way but but run towards the problem and really looking at it, seeing it, uh, seeing all these consequences and trying to find something just really practical about that. Like, like what I learned, probably the biggest takeaway, not that they're not that I'm trying to hierarchalize your knowledge or anything was just the <laughs> property thing. Like how can this, these communities build wealth without property and yeah. what is the ramifications of not actually having property? Like I can't imagine uh, like, like, and I don't want to adopt this framework beyond this one statement, but the privilege that I have to just have property yeah. is phenomenally more powerful and potential. Yeah. And to, to be in a state where I'm not, I don't have access to that. No, we have gonna... this idea of land that's spiritual, right? Which I don't really have. I don't have that kind of connection to the land other than an aesthetic uh, enjoyment of that. Yeah, no, I'd got, much rather have that, you know, Western European like property relationship with yeah, my property. Well, see, that, that's the thing too. Is like, I, I, I mean, I know that. How can I say? Like, I, I look at some of the ideas that came out of you know the West or Western civilization as, I mean, maybe it's a misnomer, but it's like it's they're universal. You know, like, like the idea of property rights that definitely was you know born out of the West and you know and and how it's applied, but. It's a principle that should be applied universally to all people. You know, you should have the ability to own your own property you know, and yeah, do with as yeah. you please, as long as you're not harming anybody. But uh, I also yeah. But like, if you look at how that principle works, like in a culture that's not the West, I don't. I don't want to pull an Asian country out of the hat, but like an Asian country that takes up property rights. Yeah. And and then you see and you compare it to an Asian uh, country that doesn't do that or has a centralized well, like, authority. Look at Hong Kong. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Hong Kong's a perfect example. They have zero natural resources, just about, and it's a thriving, booming economy. It's because the institutions there are conducive to producing prosperity, and it feeds on itself. It's just just motor that takes over. Yeah. Um, but uh, like, I don't know why in my mind when you uh, when I'm, we're talking like, like I think of like like going back to literature, like some some of the reasons why I like the Western canon so much. Is because some most of my favorite books they tie into that what 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 ties us together as human beings. Like I'm thinking in my mind like the Merchant of Venice when when Shakespeare puts into the mouth of Shylock, you know, do I not bleed? Am I not just like you in every way? You know, if if you prick us, do we not? Bleed? That's what he, if you if you prick us, do we not bleed? You know, if if you wrong us, will we not revenge? There's all it's like that to me is like a classic encapsulation of. The great themes in in literature that tie us together, that have this conversation, this great conversation that we can have with one another. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, back to your question, uh, or your what you were saying is that I I almost I almost feel like uh, no, I, never, I won't say no. Actually, what did you, what was your question again? I can't remember. I'm <laughs> I'm I'm just this like is, you. I I'm just like I'm ideas. literally like my yeah. This is what happens. I, like even on the podcast. This is why I had to edit the first one we did with, with Don, is that we went off on a tangent, and I'm like, man, I don't even know what how we started this, and it's like we were so far removed 
from from a review of James Lindsay and Helen Pluckrose's book. It was just like, what? Mm-hmm. what, what we, I don't know. So I was like, okay, I'm going to have to edit this out because I didn't yeah. know what we were talking about. So anyway, sorry. Yeah. No. I was just talking about property. I was just talking about just little insights into kind of cutting off the uh, infinite vengeance uh, at the path in a way and, and saying, okay, well, what needs to be done? What was done? And just have a very clear understanding of that. And I, I just, I'm not going to allow people, I'm not going to feel guilty. I'm just not going to, I'll feel, you know, I'll feel sympathy and uh, extend what sympathy is worth, but I'm not going to feel guilty. Uh, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. Cause I, cause I don't trust the, cause I know that that's one way that I'm going to be manipulated. That was oh, th- mm-hmm. the biggest lesson from Evergreen was that once you start to play this privilege oppression game, mm-hmm. you're handing over your guilt and your shame yeah. to this other authority. And I want to exactly. keep those close cause they, they're important to me. Yeah. Uh, I, they, they get out of hand for sure. Uh, I don't regulate them. Uh, perfectly, but they are my regulatory apparatus called my conscience. I'm not going to hand that over to anybody else or to a grand narrative. I'm not going to do that. But, um, you know, there's a way of of preserving, respectfully preserving uh, the history, uh, honoring that, and then moving forward from there and just looking at very simple, direct solutions, like economic solutions, philosophical solutions. I I know what it was now, but it's like... um even within native culture, there's not, there's never been a one size fits all. Like, mm-hmm. I think a lot of a lot of people have assumed that natives held property in collective. They didn't. There was, like, you go you go to the west coast. Uh, some of the fishing tribes, their their fishing rights were very, you could say, very pre Western. They were they were the the predated, where they would share fishing rights amongst families and would rotate. Or you look at, or like, even like the notion that all tribes were hunter gatherers. It's like no, Hopis were farmers. You know, that's completely a mis- You know, that's theory being applied to a culture that. that and this is one of my problems with when I come across some some favorite pet theories of academics, which is mm-hmm. critical race theory is one of them, is that they apply this theory, and they s- selectively pick, hand pick what they want to include to sub- to bolster and support their theory. And it's like, no, this is, the, the, you haven't done your homework. There's a lot of other examples out here. So I think one of the things also, tying back to your earlier question of, uh, of, 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 of education is that also reaffirming with Native people that, yeah, there's one tribe that practices the, their culture this way. And, another, and then the fact that you have these heterogeneous tribes that completely have their own encapsulated culture within itself is, doesn't mean that, that's oh, beautiful in itself, but it, that's, that's kind of my, my broader point of that hmm. that diversity of, of a culture. This cult, this tribe is different than this tribe, and then this tribe than this tribe. Um, also points to the fact that they don't they consider themselves natives, but they also they're not um, they're not this monolithic uh, um, like uh, pliable concept that you have the right to then apply. Not speaking to you, but like critical theory critical race theory to, to this this to absorb this into this you're taking away their heterogeneity and applying this homogeneous glob to them yeah. and you're doing and that's actually the most unjust part because you're speaking for them and that's and it's like no that that don't do that like let them speak for themselves yeah and you know and then try to draw out from that this maybe this theory but and, and but instead we have this opposite we're having this theory applied imposed upon them and i think that's 
Um, so again, now right now, I just did it again. I was going to tie into something you had just said, and now my mind just goes. To- Bing! <laughs> yeah, just Boom! Go- yeah and well okay this is another whole conversation we can get into at another time but it seems like there are certain concepts that can be applied universally Mm -hmm. and certain concepts that shouldn't be applied universally Mm -hmm. so to what degree can uh, certain aspects of modernism preserve the heterogeneity and the difference between all these tribes and within all these tribes preserve that and yet maximize productivity, maximize potential. Uh, I would, are there certain, you know, I would and, say and again, you have to navigate that. You know, I would say just give that right back to the tribes. Let them determine that for themselves. That's the most basic principle. Give, that's my whole channel, Native, Native Liberty, is that give them the freedom <laughs> to to figure out the things for themselves. You know, give every tribe, if this tribe wants to go along this collective path and own property in a communal aspect, and if it works or it doesn't, that's on them. You know what I mean? And don't try to apply from Washington, from this, from yeah. D.C., this one-size-fits-all model, which has, we've seen historically always fails every time it's applied, because you're, you're squashing that uniqueness of each culture or tribe or yeah. people. So yeah. That's yeah. my biggest yeah. thing is that allow the tribes to determine for themselves what they want to do. Give them their own autonomy, just like you give everybody else. And if they want to bundle the resources together and they squander it, well, at least the tribe did it themselves, and at least they can own own that, you know, so. Yeah. Yeah. I think one of the most, well, another aspect of CRT or critical theory that's so pernicious, one, it infects the brains of individuals, but two, it's very well suited to institutions to just yeah. like roll out this whole equity thing. It's like, okay, we're going to extract your resources and do it better than you could, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that's pretty much like, them better than yeah. You. Mm-hmm. With a bunch of moral rhetoric all wound up in there. Yeah, I, I, somebody made a comment on one of uh, the video I put up, and it was uh, the not purity principle, purity spiral. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of I've, I've that's I really that's the first time I heard that that term, and how it can take over a movement, and the and the movement ends up being filtered through this, and it's not really it's not really morality, it's the the principle itself takes a hierarchical priority over everything else. You know, and it's like that's that that's yeah. like I don't want that. I want the opposite of that. I, I want, I want. How can I say? I want uh, there to be morality, but not implied in a very legalistic sense uh, of like where it takes. I guess like I'm trying to think of the distinction in my mind between the letter of the law and the spirit of the law. You can apply so strictly to the letter of the law that you violate the spirit that it was written in, and I think that's what that's kind of what's happened within Native communities because of this federal oversight constantly mm-hmm. at every level. In so it's, it's, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. <sighs> Goddamn Pharisees. <laughs> <laughs> you got my reference. Wow. <laughs> That's well, good. it is Easter. Wow, Benjamin. Yeah. Gotcha. Today. You got to give the, the not devil is due. <laughs> Yeah, that's kind of the same. Yeah, it's exactly the, the principle I'm thinking of in my mind. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, Jason, we should do this again. Um, thank you for your time and your mind and your work. And I hope that people get turned on to what you're doing and you get a bigger following that you maybe don't want or maybe do want or maybe have this weird uh, relationship yeah, to your desire. I'm all for it, man. I, whatever happens, happens. Case <laughs> or raw. <laughs> no, hopefully next time I'll... 
I'll have my mind prepared better. I'm like, I'll, I'm all over the place. I'm just like a, a jumble of atoms firing all at once. <laughs> yeah, don't worry about it. I'm, I'm the exact same thing. That's why I have uh, James Lindsay and Wokel on. They can just like go through the trenches and I kind of just chariot on top of them and everyone's a little tug, their, tug the bit this way or that way gently. <laughs> uh, well, thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Yeah, Alan, thank you, for, thank you for... Uh, you and James, a shout out on your on your oh. episode about two weeks ago. I was like, well, I literally, I was eating the Chipotle burrito and watching the channel. I was like, Whoa, I was like what's happening? What? <laughs> Man, I, I'm glad I'm not that popular because every time I see myself on social media, like somebody mentioning me, I'm like, I just get this complete panic. Like, oh crap, what what happened? What, is it, is it happening do? now? Is the cancellation upon me? Is it finally come? <laughs> Oh, man. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. I'm going to end right. the recording. Congratulations for reaching the end of the discussion. If you enjoyed it, do be sure to leave a review or a comment or a thumbs up or whatever you need to do to show that glorious algorithm that this is some good stuff. And do be sure to go and check that back catalog as it is brimming full of fantastic conversations. Links to provide monetary support are down there in the description as well. Have a good night.